We'll be reading from Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 17, found on page 4. Genesis 2, 1 through 17. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees that grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold in that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man... You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of the good and even and good of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Thank you very much, David, reading for us. Uh, if you've been paying attention to uh, the uh, card listing sermons uh, for this. Um, for this month, uh, then uh, you would have been expecting the whole of chapter two. Um, uh, David Todd was going to be preaching next week on a sort of overview of one and two. Um, there's so much in chapter two that David and I have, um, have plotted, um, and I'm going to take these first 17, he's going to take 18 uh, through to 25, just in case you're wondering. Um, let's start with some adverts. Um, uh, here's one from uh, quite a few years back now, maybe you remember it. Um, mostly uh, appeared on London buses. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. I guess you get the implication. God spoils. He ruins. Fussing and worrying about God and whether he's there and what he wants is just going to go and ruin your life. Uh, so since there probably isn't any God, let go of all of that and get on and enjoy life. God spoils. Uh, or about this one, slightly um, less mainstream. Uh, 
sort of, sort of comes in the magazines that I get nowadays. Uh, uh, free at 45. How to retire early and happy. Uh, and then you've got Brenda, who's clearly very free on her motorbike. Uh, or uh, Billy, um, who's also very free, whatever he's doing, jumping into something or other. Um, okay, well, what's the implication there? Um, somehow that the notion is that life will finally be fulfilled. You know, at last we'll be able to enjoy ourselves when, um, like the man on the beach, all of the, all of the clutter and cluster of, of stuff that goes with work is finally left behind. Um, and I'll be able to run into the, the sea and enjoy myself at long last. Okay, here's my question. Um, which of these two attitudes do you think is the more influential upon you? Which of those two attitudes uh, do you think is more influential upon you? Um, and it's more than a rhetorical question. I, I'm going to give you a few minutes. I want you to think about that. Um, I don't think the question is... Uh, maybe you're thinking, oh, it's obvious, I know. Um, I don't think it's as obvious as you might think. Uh, just have a little chew over on that for a moment. Talk to the person next to you uh, just for a few seconds. Which of those do you think is more influential upon you? Okay, I'm, um, I'm not going to take feedback from you on that. Um, I, I hope that's sort of got you, got you thinking and puzzling. Um, won't take feedback on that. Well, um, actually, just occurs to remember, have you worked out which one it is? Uh, we're going to have some questions and, and answer time in either two weeks' time or three weeks' time. Um, by the end of the service, two weeks' time, in two weeks' time. Okay, so if you, if you want to... These are chapters that produce lots of questions, in my experience. Um, and the, we're, we're rattling through them at high speed. So um, it's likely that um, we'll be missing stuff out. So a couple of weeks' time, uh, store up some questions. We'll make time for that, um, to do that together. Um, it seems to me that this second chapter of the Bible has lots to say about those two issues that we've just been thinking about. But before we get to that, we need a couple of orientating comments. Um, the second chapter of Genesis is sometimes described as a second creation account. Um, and the accent then tends to be on the differences. You know, we've had one account of creation in chapter one. Now look at this one in chapter two. Oh, seems a bit different. Oh, puzzle, puzzle, puzzle. Um, I don't think that's terribly helpful because in all sorts of ways, actually, they're complementary accounts um, uh, and serving different functions. See, chapter one, um, m- mankind... Uh, the creation of, uh, of male and female, is kind of the climax of the account. Everything, everything sort of ramps up towards it. Then we get to day six, and the climax, the pinnacle, is there. 
Um, in, in chapter 2, um, mankind is more like the, the, the fulcrum, the pivot around which the whole chapter, you know, it, it's all about um, mankind and his relationships. Is much more the, the flavor of it. So it's almost as if, um, I don't know, what, uh, if, you, if you have an art book and you've got a, you've got a, a masterpiece um, all mapped out for you, you've got the whole picture on one page, and then you flip over the page, and sometimes in an art book like that, you then get a detail of a tiny little bit of extract of the painting, and you can see all the, the detail there. If you're not arty, then it's a bit like the beginning of match of the day. Um, uh, when it's, you know, you've got a couple of games and you see the, 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 the United Kingdom and it zooms right in and suddenly you're in the ground. Okay, so that's the contrast between uh, the two accounts. Um, and in, in creating this second account, um, the, the name of God even changes. Uh, so in the first chapter, it's God. Elohim, the, the sort of the, the general name for God. Moving to chapter 2, and it's, it's the covenant name for God, uh, the Lord, Yahweh. Um, because the accent is now going to be on, on relationships um, in chapter 2 in a bigger way. Um, next introductory comment, just don't be put off by the accent in the chant we're looking at that, that's got Adam in the frame. Uh, we're going to get to the creation of Eve and the relationships between male and female next week. A- at this stage, um, Adam is, I suppose, sort of functioning slightly like the, um, a representative for the whole of mankind. Um, so we, we need to think in terms of what this tells us about mankind rather than um, uh, men uh, in detail. Um, don't be put off also by the chapter division. Um, the chapter division is actually... It, I, I was listening to somebody who was talking about this and saying it, it really is a bit sad when you think... Because in the medieval period, um, they, they chunked the Bible up and put chapter divisions in because they weren't there originally. Um, and you kind of feel it's a bit tragic that the first job they had, which was to choose the beginning of chapter 2, um, most people think they got wrong. Um, it's just sort of not a good start, really, was it? Because um, you, you can't help feeling that the division really ought to come at two chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. Can you see? Because the first three verses sort of wrap up the first account with the seventh day. Um, and then we get this sort of introductory phrase uh, in verse 4. Um, so again, don't, don't be distracted by that. I've got three headings um, as we try and understand. Three things, if you like, that, that only make sense with reference to God. And they are delight, work, and freedom. Three things that only make sense uh, with reference uh, to God. Um, let, let's see if we can make sense of these. Uh, first, delight. Um, beginning, of the, beginning of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Um, Here, in all sorts of ways, really is the climax. Uh, I've said the creation of of male and female is the climax, but actually you could go further than that and say, now we arrive at the true climax, which is having finished his creation, having seen that it is very good, uh, we now read that God rests. 
Because he doesn't stop working altogether. Jesus made that clear, didn't he? My father works even to this very day, um, he said uh, in, um, in John chapter 5, verse 17. So it's not so God stops working. He stops, he's finished his work of creation. That's what's finished. He still needs to sustain it, uh, but he's finished uh, creating, uh, and as it were, he settles back as though to enjoy it. And enjoyment and delight are, are big themes here. Um, the, the original uh, word for Eden is linked to the word for delight. Um, what God makes isn't simply functional, as if God were content with things that just do their job. He makes things that are lovely. Did you catch that? Look over to verse 9. Uh, the trees aren't simply good for food, but they're also pleasing to the eye. I take it that God could have made some very productive fruit trees that were ugly, but he chose not to do that. He chose to make trees that were aesthetically pleasing, beautiful to look at, and that produced uh, the fruit that needed. Beauty matters to God. But it, but it is a beauty that must be understood in relation to him. Uh, we mustn't jump too far ahead, but um, in a couple of weeks' time, when we get to chapter 3, we will see that it was partly the allure of the, the beauty of the tree that led Eve to take the fruit from it. You know, she saw that the, 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 the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was, was beautiful, pleasing to the eye, um, and the food looked good, so she took it. You see, you can't interpret things that look lovely without reference to God. If you do that, then the fall takes place. That's a pretty big thing. Now, as we understand what we see around us, the, the, the created things that are beautiful, we have to think about them in relation uh, to what God wants us to do with them. Um, the material world is good. Um, we mustn't make that mistake and imagine somehow that spiritual things are good and material things, well, they're a bit disappointing and, and sort of not so good. Um, there's been a long tradition um, of people making that mistake, of thinking only spiritual things are good and, and material things, well, not so good. Uh, you see it in the New Testament in, uh, in Corinth, which is why in Corinth there were some Christians who were sleeping with prostitutes because they thought, well, my body doesn't matter. It's only spiritual things that matter. So what I do with my body, that doesn't matter. I can sleep with a prostitute. On the other hand, there were also people in Corinth who were putting signs, as it were, above their bed, um, uh, above their marriage beds, saying, um, no sex, please. Um, we're spiritual. Because Christian people, spiritual people, didn't involve themselves with earthy things like sex. So misunderstanding that the material world is good leads you, into, leads you into really weird errors. And instead of that, Paul would have us understand, uh, 1 Timothy uh, puts it like this, everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, which includes the material world. It's made good things, wants us to enjoy them, but we have to enjoy them in relation with reference uh, to God. Second, uh, work needs to be understood with reference to God. 
Um, the issue of works all over this chapter, isn't it? I mean, we've already seen the way in which God was at work in creation, um, and then he rests. But man works as well. Uh, catch that there in uh, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Two ideas there. To, to work it is, is the tilling, doing something with the land uh, to make it productive. Um, and to, to take care of it has the sense of keep it, protect it, guard it against threat, uh, seems to be the idea. Um, it is as if without mankind, creation is not going to be as it should be. Um, somehow mankind is needed in order for creation to function as creation should function. Um, and that's the picture we get uh, we read the next section. Um, pick it up in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. There's a bit of a debate, but it seems to me that what's being pictured here is, is a watery mess, kind of swamp-like, where nothing productive can grow. There's, there's, there's disorder, there's chaos, there's just this sort of floods all over the earth. Um, uh, and it's just sort of chaotic, watery mess. Something like the chaos with which chapter 1 began, funnily enough. But then, verse 7, the Lord God forms a man from the dust of the ground and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Fascinating to see the kind of worker God is. I mean, I, mean, I guess you'd, you'd, you'd tend to think, wouldn't you, that, that God would be a, a manager with a clipboard. Sort of, sort of feels like a godlike function. And what do you find? He's a manual laborer. He gets dirt under his fingernails. Forms the man from the dust of the ground. Gets his hands into the dirt uh, to bring mankind into being. And then in verse 8, a bit, bit more dirt to work with, God creates a garden. Actually, the language is of a, a paradise. Something like a, a walled garden. The perfect protected context for mankind to live in. Uh, listen to the description of it, verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he'd put the man he'd formed. Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. River watering the garden flowed from Eden, from there it was separated into four headwaters. First name of the first is the Pishon. Winds through the entire land of Havilah where there's gold. Gold of that land's good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. Name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. Name of the third river is the Tigris. Runs through the east side of the Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. I guess most of us recognize the names of two of those rivers. Nobody quite knows 
what the other rivers represent, sort of hints at this, the, the rough geography that lots of people puzzle over where. And I don't think that's really what matters. I think the key thing to notice is that this garden, this Garden of Eden, when it is properly worked, when mankind is, is, is doing their job properly, this garden becomes a source of blessing to the entire world. This headwater that splits into four rivers waters the whole earth. And in the context of the Middle East, the watering, oh, that's blessing. That's huge blessing in, in that climate. And so out of Eden flows these four rivers. When Eden's functioning well, the whole world is blessed. And Eden functions well when mankind functions well. So what then is work? If it's crucial that mankind gets their work right in order that Eden functions right, what is this work? How would we understand it? Well, the people who are on the Beeson, um, and indeed Oscar himself, will be very glad. Where's Oscar gone? Oh, you're right at the back. Uh, Oscar will be very glad to know that the paradigm for work, you know, that the, the, the best picture that God seems to be able to come up with for us in Genesis chapter 2 for work is a gardener. That's it. A gardener. That'll do. Why? Well, because the picture we're getting is of somebody who... Um, oh, dear. Um, somebody who messes with God's creation. Yeah, you, you, you take the stuff. I haven't checked this out with Oscar, but I mean, I think I get this. Yeah, you take the stuff that's in a garden, like soil and seeds and water, and, and you kind of, you mess with it in order that it becomes productive, in order that it does its job, that it produces fruit, and veg, if that's what you're doing. Or that it grows some flowers for you. Or it creates a gorgeous place just to be in. It either blesses your body with food to eat, or it blesses your soul with a place to be and beautiful things to look at. That's what the gardener does. And, and it's like a paradigm for all work. When we work, we um, one writer's defined it like this. Let me read it so I get it right, because uh, I found it so helpful. Uh, work, he says, is rearranging the raw materials of a particular domain to draw out their potential for the flourishing of everyone. Say that again, I think it's really helpful. Work is rearranging the raw materials of a particular domain to draw out their potential for the flourishing of of everyone. Now, don't get too romantic about, about gardening. We mustn't confuse gardening with conservation. You know, the gardening here is, is not sort of the sort of keep off, you know, keep off the grass. Don't, don't, you, dare, um, don't you dare ever chop down a tree. No, if you need to chop down a tree so the light can get in so that some crops can grow, that's okay. It's, it's not that creation, nature, needs to be preserved. No, nature needs to be carefully well-managed and used for the flourishing of everyone. There's an important difference there. 
It's the rearranging of the raw materials of a particular domain so that they might reach their potential and bring flourishing to everyone. So anything about engineering, oh, you take some rock, I think. <laughs> rock, I mean, engineers work with rock, don't they? Stone, they do that sort of stuff. Build bridges, they're handy for us. Even better is engineers take some rock and build drains. That's really important for the flourishing of everyone, isn't it? Musicians, they take the raw materials of sound and rearrange them to make music. That is good for our souls. That causes our emotions to soar. That helps us to flourish. What a miserable world it would be without music. Artists take the raw materials of paint and um, uh, and canvas and rearrange those to make things that are beautiful. Writers take the raw material of language and construct stories that help us make sense of ourselves and our world. That's what work is. But, but, but it works for the shoemaker. It works for the ditch digger. It even actually works for the investment banker. Yeah. But we miss this. If, if it sounds easy, what I've described, it's not. Now, again and again, we, we misstep, don't we, in relation to work, because we forget to relate it to God. Instead of working for Him, serving His purposes, and enabling people to flourish, no, 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 we work for ourselves, for our purposes, and in order that we might flourish. It's a very different thing. Maybe work becomes the place where I find my meaning, my status. Work becomes the place where I earn some money so that I can do the stuff that I want to do. The focus is on me. How different when I understand that work is the means by which I serve others and I serve my Lord and bring blessing to others. And it does apply everywhere. Don't think this is only the sort of, you know, the lovely creative functions. No, 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 you can apply this to any area of work. If you're a student, you're studying for yourself so that you'll have a good career one day that'll be fulfilling to you. Or are you studying so that you could be useful to God and of service to others in the future? Very different mindset between those two things. So we've seen that delight only makes sense with reference to God. Work only makes sense with reference to God. Um, now finally, freedom only makes sense with reference to God. Uh, you spotted, haven't you, the, the garden is full of trees, verse 9. And uh, concerning those trees, there are specific um, instructions. Uh, you see it there in uh, verse 16. Uh, where God says uh, to Adam, uh, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. I'm going to pause. I know you're rattling on to verse 17. Just wait. Um, catch this bit first. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden. That's a big freedom. There are a lot of trees there, and they are very good. God's first word to mankind is you're free. 
enjoy. Feast yourselves upon my abundant provision in my garden. God is no spoil sport. There's, there's, no, there's no begrudging toleration of mankind. Oh, all right then, if you eat if you must do. Very well then. No, 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 eat, you're free. It's a great creation, go enjoy it. But there is a stipulation. Verse 17, where God says, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And you're going to think, well, isn't this this it? This ruins it. the, The adverts on the buses were right. You know, God does just spoil things. Isn't this the best bit, presumably? And God's slamming the door on it, not letting us in. Only that's not what's going on here. We need to understand, or at least seek to understand, what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil really is. Uh, Much written about this. Um, it, It can't be, can it, that somehow eating from this tree... Uh, makes mankind a moral being. And so until he eats from the tree, um, he doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. He, he has no capacity to make moral choices. Can't be that, can it? Because at this point, God has given him a moral choice. It's set out there. You, know, you can do this, you mustn't do that. Uh, God treats him like a moral being already. Uh, the choice is presented before him. So what is it then? To take this fruit is, as it were, to take the moral high ground. It is to storm the very throne of God and say, God, I know better than you. You tell me not to take this fruit, but I know that I should take this fruit. I won't have you define what right and wrong is. No, 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 I'll define what right and wrong is. As it's sometimes been said, this moment is, is less about law-breaking than it is about law-making. It's about mankind saying, I will be the arbiter. I will take these decisions about what is good for me and not good for me. Won't have you do that, God. No, I'll do that on my own. It's the assertion of my moral independence from God. People often ask, why did God put the tree there? What a mistake. Hadn't put the tree there, never out of all this bother. Tree had to be there. Without this tree being there, there would be no relationship between God and mankind. Relationships require vulnerability. I mean, we know that, don't we? If you're going to get into a relationship with someone, you have to give them the capacity to hurt you because you have to give them the capacity to reject you. If they don't have that capacity, then you have no relationship. We, we might have a, a begrudgingly obedient subject, 
but you'd never have a loyal and loving friend. Now, in a couple of weeks' time, we will get to look more at the decision to rebel. But for the moment, as we wrap up, would you just notice that the prohibition, far from removing freedom, far from curtailing freedom, actually creates it. It's, it's the one thing that makes freedom possible is this stipulation. Because to be truly free is not for there to be no rules. That's what we think. We get so confused. We think being free is the absence of rules. No, no, being free is not the absence of rules. Being free is submitting to the right rules. I couldn't find it. Very annoying. Um, somewhere there is a most excellent picture of two goldfish in a goldfish bowl. Um, and out of sight, um, somewhere on the floor, uh, under the table where they are, is another goldfish lying on the ground, clearly not well. A- and in the bowl, one goldfish is saying to the other, well, it's been five days since he went over the top. Looks like he made it. He's free. Thanks. <laughs> Gentle titter. Sure, it would have been much fun if I'd found the picture. Maybe not. But, but you, you get the point. I mean, the goldfish is, is not free by being liberated from the water. No, the, the goldfish dies by being liberated from the water. The, the goldfish exists only when it allows itself to be constrained to its proper domain. Our proper domain is to live in submission to the God who created us. We're not free when we throw that off. We die when we throw that off. How are we doing with this? When you delight in the things of this world, do you remember that it's God's creation? Do you remember to thank him? When you set two with your work, whether it's paid or unpaid, whether it's in the home or away from the home, do do you give yourself to it in the service of others for the glory of God? Do you take that mindset into whatever your labor is? And when you think about freedom, are you thrilled with the rules God has given you? Delighted, oh great, his rules makes me free. Oh yeah, frustrated by him. I guess probably all of us score low on all three of those scores, don't we? What do we do from here? Try harder to be a bit more grateful. Try and work with a better attitude. And the last one's really tricky, isn't it? What are we going to do? We're going to try and find our way back into the goldfish bowl. See if we can hop up off the floor, even though we are actually dead there. It's not terribly optimistic, is it? And of course, the the point of this passage is is not, in a sense, to to persuade us to try a little bit harder. No, it's got to point us all the way forward to, to one who ruled over the creation just as we should have done. Yeah, Jesus spoke a word and stand, called, st- 
calmed a storm. Creation bent to his rule because he got that right. Jesus finished his work, the work that his father gave him, even the work that took him to the cross. He cried out, it is finished. And he sat down because the work was done. And then Jesus told us that he would give freedom to us. Yeah, come to him. Come to him who has worked in our place, who has lived as we should have lived, and let his rule over you liberate you. I was puzzled. I couldn't decide where to land as I tried to take this to Christ. I think the best I can do is is to take you to Matthew 11, uh, to these verses. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, we're in burdened by our rest, we're in burdened by our constant failings, by our lack of gratitude, by our wrong attitude towards work. Weary, burdened, come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Don't think that submitting to my rule is a miserable thing. It's not. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle, humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Let me pray. Uh, Father God, uh, thank you for uh, the Lord Jesus who has lived in right relationship with you uh, perfectly, constantly. Uh, And thank you for the victory that he's therefore won. Uh, And the way in which... um, in coming to him, uh, we submit to, to a Lord who is gentle with us uh, and whose burden upon us uh, is light. But we do need to uh, bear uh, his yoke. Teach us to do that uh, cheerfully. Uh, for um, we are grateful for such a loving Savior. Amen.